0: Well, thank you very much, Mark. And uh, I can't see much from here, but can you all hear me if I stand here? Um, And first, I'd like to start off by thanking uh, Tony and and, uh, uh, Josephine for the opportunity to come here. I've been incredibly excited by the whole thing of reliving uh, my sort of bacon experiences, if you like. Uh, So I'm going to talk about uh, the... Bacon's technique of paintings. Uh, I'm, I'll apologise if, in advance. I'm going to digress a bit at some stages, uh, and I hope my uh, talk isn't too anecdotal. But I do, have, I do have some lovely images to show you, and uh, I want to establish a few facts uh, from my discussions with Bacon, and, and importantly, too, of course, looking at his paintings over the years. Over the years, I should say. And here he is. And to put it in a sort of historical context, a bit of autobiographical, further autobiographical detail from me, this was in 1984. Uh, as I was a paintings conservator at the Tate Gallery, uh, and one of the three things I was working on was the, the Bacon Exhibition. So this is the, um, the, the catalogue uh, that um, we've referred to. Other things I was working on at the time were uh, the Apollo and the Python by Turner, uh, and uh, this was a major restoration and cleaning job. And the large glass, this is the 1966 version uh, by Richard Hamilton in, in, in uh, collaboration with Marcel Duchamp, um, because the original couldn't travel. And that, that comes into the talk, and I think it's relevant, and I felt justified in including it today because, of course, Tony's mentioned it in the catalogue and he's referred to it al- already. Um, but at this stage, being autobiographical, um, i just applied to be uh, the head of conservation at the Australian National Gallery. Uh, having interviewed Bacon, I'd flown here to, to Australia. Uh, the Art Gallery of New South Wales was the first place I came to, waiting for the connection to, to uh, Canberra. Uh, the Domain was the first bit of Australia I walked across. And Whilst I was here, uh, there were cameras in the gallery uh, photographing someone, an artist with curly hair who was sitting on a, um, a stool and he was being filmed because he'd just won the Archibald Prize and, of course, it was Brett Whiteley and he comes into the story too. Uh, so I was interviewed and I went back to the Tate and it was six months because I, later that I, I came to Australia because I had to finish the Turner off. It's something I couldn't hand over... Uh, and I also waited uh, for the the Bacon exhibition. So as soon as the the exhibition was over, I finished the Turner, I handed over the the restoration of the the, uh, Duchamp to other colleagues and came here. So that's enough by way of background. Um, uh, So my involvement with the exhibition was to interview Francis Bacon um, about his, his techniques, about the materials he used, uh, there was a lot of information already because of this book, these wonderful uh, interviews with David sylvester um, and I went and my first encounter with Bacon, of course, he said, "Well, I know nothing about technique, but come along anyway and I did, but of course, he was referring to the sort of textbook um, uh, manuals of, painting manuals uh, and but of course, technique was what he used, how he applied those materials in making his, his works. Uh, and a lot of that had already been talked about in, in Sylvester's books. Excuse me. Excuse me. So, here we go. So this is 7 Reese Rees-Mews. Uh, you'll see this uh, illustration in the catalogue, although this is a bit more extensive. Uh, this is the, the studio here the door with very steep stairs in between, and this is the sitting room that uh, Barbara showed us the interior of. Uh, you've seen this, and I, uh, this, uh, the picture of his kitchen. Uh, I'll show it again unapologetically, and I'll be showing it again later because I want to refer to some of the, the illustrations pinned there. But at this stage, I'm just arriving at 7 Rees-Mews by appointment. Uh, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, I seem to remember. Uh, you've heard already about Bacon's uh, reputation. Uh, I get to the top of the stairs, Bacon is standing here at the sink, and the first thing he said to me uh, was, Cup of tea? My jaw must have dropped because he saw the expression on my face and then said, Oh, something stronger, uh, whiskey perhaps. And we went from from there. So that's my first introduction to uh, Seven Rees-Mews. I had my list of uh, questions, of course, uh, about... uh, uh, his materials and techniques, so we went straight in and talked about how he produced his works. Uh, and what I'm going to start with is talking about the supports which he used, so what he actually painted on. I'll start with the uh, the first recognised picture at that time, the, the 1933 painting that we'll, we'll come to, uh, wasn't in the exhibition. Um, as Tony pointed out, this was re- largely considered his, the starting point of, 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 of uh, Bacon's, uh, career. And these b- figures at the base of the crucifixion were painted on something called Sandila board. So this is a, a fibrous board. Um, it's, it's a very cheap substance. It's, it's, uh, it, it's quite a light board, but not as light as canvas. And of course the year 1944, it's still wartime and good artist materials were scarce, as they were in this country. Not necessarily because they, uh, they were um, they weren't coming to the country, but in fact they were being snapped up uh, by the, the war artists. Uh, but he, So he chose to use board, and this, of course, was being used at the time too by Roy Demester. Uh, I said in the catalogue that Roy Demester was still using this as late as 1956, uh, a date I came by, by looking at the, the works in the Tate. They've got several Demesters there, uh, all of which were on Sandilabord. Um but it had, its, um, it had its advantages, according to Bacon. So here we have these wonderful details, uh, close-up details of his very assured brush, brushwork and drawing uh, and his use of pastel as well. Uh, so as soon as he could, he did change to using canvas, but nevertheless, he did um, talk about the advantage that Sun Board held pastel well. And these are... Deep close-ups of the handling of that paint. The, the, um, the triptych couldn't travel here, uh, so it's not in the exhibition, but you do have uh, one of the studies for it, um, which is this right-hand panel. You have the panel upstairs, and that too is on Sundila board. But a further detail of it... Uh, the mouth and the, the spiky area underneath the, the figure... And here, this is the type of picture I tend to get excited about, uh, but it's important because of... can you see the the, the lure? So it's um, the paint is very dry and fairly uh, not unstable, but very delicate, and that's the reason the tape will give for, for not for not lending it. And again, a picture that the type of picture that sort of excites someone like me. You can see here, uh, like the canvas, which he. This is the uh, the bare board inside the frame. But I think that gives you a good idea of this, the surface quality uh, of the work. So uh, but moving on, uh, this is the also in the exhibition here. Uh, this is on canvas, so it's, it's uh, just a bit later than the, the crucifix um, triptych. Uh, and this at the time, this is something, the picture I know well, the, the, it's now in the National Gallery in Scotland, but it was owned um, at that time by someone called Gabrielle Keeler, she was known as the Marmalade Queen to the curators at the Tate, uh, I don't know whether you come across Dundee, Keeler's Dundee Marmalade, that's where the family fortune came from, uh, but I visited... Um, her collection, to prepare this for the exhibition. And I think I'm right in remembering that this was one of the few pictures that wasn't behind glass at that time, so it was just a question of reframing it and preparing it for the exhibition. Moving on, or probably more correctly, moving backwards. Um, And as I say, I wanted to thank Tony for organising the exhibition because it's been a tremendous, uh, not just... uh, like uh, Barbara saying, visiting old friends for me, it's coming across wonderful images which I've never seen in the flesh before. Um, so going back to the 1933 uh, canvas, it was a revelation for me to to, to look at it in the flesh. And um, I'm going to mention what good condition Bacon's pictures are in. I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, but this in oops. Uh, but this in fact. Uh, you can see upstairs the sort of cracking in the paint surface around here. I'll come back to that, to the condition of Bacon's works generally. Um, so still oil on canvas. Then we have two other uh, pictures on canvas, uh, which I'm, I'll be coming back to when I'm talking about the, the, the actual painted surface. But Figuring a Landscape, 1945. Now, you've seen this, Tony's shown this already, based on the, the portrait of um, Eric Hall. And the very important picture painting uh, 1946 now in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I've got quite a bit to say on this in a minute. But at the moment, I'm just talking about the support, the, the move from sandpaper board uh, to canvas, and, as, as is well known, turn painting on the back of the back of canvas. So um, this is 1946. Uh, he told me that it was in the south of France that he used. Uh, that he came, he he started reversing the canvases. It was simple um, uh, expediency. He'd run out of canvas, so basically he turned the canvas around and started painting on the back. Uh, and he was he was with Sutherland at the time, and he he uh, did did um, likewise. So as I say, it was a simple expediency. Um, but he liked uh, he he used the phrase it suited the south of France. Uh, but he, he also said that he liked the tooth uh, the tooth of the canvas, which again Tony looked at how the paint was built up uh, on the um, on the uh, the raw uh, unprimed side of the canvas and If I go into detail here, um, in going back to bacon 's work, I was constantly coming a- across things, and even this morning it 's wonderful to sort of reappraise everything and um, uh, this uh, I was checking the date of this picture because I would always assumed it was quite a late work. It's, it's just so fresh, but again, this bears out what I was saying about the condition of, of Bacon's works. Um, but here it is. Uh, I think, I, it, it, and then I was um, I was surprised to find it wasn't in the, the Tate catalogue that exhibition of 1985. It is in their collection. Um, but I, uh, it's of, of that date, and I want to sort of zoom in now, looking at the, the back of the dog, the dog in the centre of the picture. So, zooming in, we see the uh, um, the raw canvas, and then the sort of this very opaque build-up of of, of, of paint as it's dragged across the weave, and of course this uh, bright grains of sand, very sort of clearly marked clearly used here rather than mixed in with the the um, as in the, the the belfast picture the picture of the of the the head um, we're going to zoom in further and look at those granules and now i want to explain um something called scumble does anyone know what a, a scumble is uh, rather than a glaze it's, um, it's something I've explained several times to curators, but they, and they hear the explanation, but it's, um, I don't think they ever get it. And then looking at this last night, I thought, well, this is the perfect example of a scumble. It's a good uh, example. So here you see the paint just sitting. I don't know how clear it is from the back there. Can you see the paint just sitting on top of the, the, the weave of the canvas there? If we go back. And so... A scumble is actually um, uh, the use of opaque paint. So a glaze is a thin translucent layer put on top of paint so you can see the layers underneath it. A scumble is using opaque paint uh, where it's applied in such a way that the the layers underneath show through. And um, it occurred to me last night that that was a perfect example of that. Uh, at this stage, too, these, these um, images, these details, were taken at the Tate, and we, we put it into a sort of not a video, obviously, but a, a sequence of stills. And uh, this was shown during the exhibition, uh, demonstrating his technique, of course. Uh, but we put a we, um, we we thought about using a, a soundtrack and up until that point everything to do with film or the programs about bacon they'd always use some sort of 1950s jazz music Uh, so i did ask him probably not in this interview but i did ask him if there's any specific reason for that and he said well no i don't know why they always use that it's of no particular interest to me Uh, he'd recently painted a picture and it was in the exhibition of brian ferry Uh, so we in fact uh, got uh, just at the opening, asked Brian Ferry if he objected to a track being used from his then-latest then latest album. He had no objection, so uh, we used that soundtrack. I thought I'd put that little snippet of information in because uh, we were talking earlier about uh, the importance of Bacon's preferences in, in music. Um, uh, this still with the same picture. Uh, here's the little the, um, the palm tree in the background. You can almost just see it being painted. You can count the brushstrokes as he... As he puts it in and I hope i'm not laboring the point but i think it's good to use this as a, a clarification this is the reverse of the canvas uh, so here you can see uh, this is just as tony described it uh, pre-primed artist canvas stretched back to front uh, uh, so it's as, as simple as that but i think this is a just a good illustration um, to the the support the the the, uh, stretcher rather is no great shakes it's just a, a very it's not a particularly um strong or uh over the top um stretcher it's just a pine stretcher um but uh I think this illustrates, the, with this uh, what we call sort of moisture barrier of the priming, the fact that they're glazed. Uh, most gallery pictures, and I think, I should imagine privately owned ones too, have got backboards on. So it just means they're in very stable condi- uh, condition. And with the exception of the, um, the 1933 canvas and the works on sandealer board, I've never really seen any um, any evidence of cracking in in any of Bacon's work. Even though in some cases they're painted. Uh, very thickly, so this is a, a great sort of testament and um, uh, example of, of good conservation work as well. Uh, so that's the, um, that I think that's just, and uh, ever since then uh, Tony asked about the date 1949, I think he said, I thought it was a bit earlier than that, just uh, looking at the, the dates of works that he's painted on canvas uh, but he's, he's, uh, used this, he's used this ever since for this small Um, the small works and these larger ones. And talking about the size of the works, uh, I want to move on now to uh, just sort of test the the theory, if you like, that Bacon... um, that painting was Bacon's only medium. I think it was uh, Lucian Freud talked to uh, in an interview with Lawrence Gowing had said he thought the sort of the force and the the strength of Bacon's work was the fact that it was his only medium. Uh, but before I move on, I'm just talking about canvases still. This is the canvas uh, that was on his easel uh, when when he died in 1992. Uh, but just whoops, just a point about the. Uh, The size, you'll see they're all pretty, um, very much the same size. Uh, He had them pre-primed at Tarantes, the um, the artist supplier in North London, and the size is the the maximum size that can get through that doorway at an angle. So that's just sort of one of those uh, minor points which are nevertheless very important in in an artist's life. But back to the question of of drawing, Um, we can see here that uh, his... his, um, quote to me was that he draws in paint. So he paints... He, sorry, he draws with the brush. And here's a, an exa, uh, a good example of that. So this is him uh, drawing uh, very freely, uh, these sort of lovely arabesques, um, very... Um, but by contrast. Uh, but then um, shortly after this... Inter- well, f- from camera, I was, I was in New York about seven or eight months later um, which is why I did um, see uh, various artists there, including Frank Stella. Um, but I, I was a bit perplexed to see an, an art dealer's there prints by Francis Bacon. So I was thinking I, I was I then made me query whether he had in fact used any printmaking techniques. Uh, they were they were of the order of sort of t- uh, twenty or thirty thousand dollars for the prints of the trip teachers, But in fact, it would have been more accurate to call them facsimiles. Um, So I think it still remains uh, true that painting was his only medium. Uh, But again, in terms of drawing, uh, and I I think Barbara mentioned, uh, apropos the food, that he he was uh, constantly drawing at some stage. Uh, These have just recently come to my attention. A a colleague um, from Canberra, he um, he was our conservation scientist at the National Gallery, Um, he's recently been doing some work over in Britain, in Scotland, but at at the Tate, and on micro-fading. So he was testing the the fading properties of various um, uh, artist artist materials, including, in this case, biro. So he he mentioned the fact that he'd been uh, testing uh, drawings by Bacon at the Tate. So he sent me these two images, this one and that one. And before I actually got them, I thought perhaps, they were perhaps um, sketches on a serviette or something from Wheeler's restaurant. But no, they're very much part of the, the sort of um, studio furniture you can see, as we've seen with his books and um, uh, photographs, etc. Uh, the sort of stains of a, a, a studio. Um, but, Bruce Ford was, was testing the medium. It's very stable Byro, but that's not really the point. Uh, I want just to show that um, they are, I think you would probably agree, fairly inept as drawing as drawings. He was no draftsman. Um, again, Tony contrasted that 1933 painting with Picasso. Picasso, by contrast, if you've been to the, uh, the early Picasso Museum in, um, in Barcelona, you'll see exquisite drawings that Picasso was doing, very anger at the age of 12 or 13 even. Uh, so that's his, his uh, Bacon as a Draftsman. Uh, but back to the, the painting, um, the painted surface now. So yes, he was... Uh, he um, uh, In talking about the paints he used, he was talking about doing the backgrounds, but uh, not in this case with, with acrylics, but uh, for the central image he always uses oil paint, and I think the phrase he used that it was... Um, acrylic wasn't subtle enough but at this stage, so back in 1945, uh, apropos this, he mentioned as, as, as Tony pointed out, the fact that he'd used dust from the studio I seem to remember him saying that he put his fingers along the, the windowsill uh, but uh, Tony reports I'm sure correctly that it's from the floor because he quotes um, Bacon himself telling David Sylvester about it that he, 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 he gets dust from the floor and rubs it in uh, into the, the lapel, there. Um, I thought uh, this is just some details. That's um, clearly back to front because the green's at the top left. But details of this sort of is sort of arabesque and very assured but pe- drawing with the brush, as he as he describes. Um, and then a detail of that dust. But it's slightly. I think I've got this slightly long. I think the the. Uh, there's a trouble with details, to locate them. I think the lapel with the dust is here and it should be turned 90 <laughs> degrees. And at this stage, I was going to... you know, Going back to the uh, Duchamp and Hamilton, uh, I thought I was going to bring this in as a, as a, 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 a contrast, but uh, Tony was before me there. This is um, the Man Ray picture of the large glass during its construction. Its gestation was something like seven or eight years before... Be- um, Think about um, 1914 was it? 1914 to 1923, something like that. 1916 to 1923, and at some stage it was in his Paris studio, and this was the the state it was in. But just to uh, talk a bit further, since dust has been has been raised, um, these are the sieves that, um, and so originally uh, they were how um, uh, Duchamp fix them, he just poured I, don't, I couldn't locate them on here this is the chocolate grinder here, the sieves are over here somewhere, what he did was just pour uh, mastic varnish onto the dust and that sort of fixed them in that particular spot, he would then cl- cleaned away both the mastic and the dust itself from outside the sieves. so that's a, a rather nice use of, um, of chance uh, chance I would think but not necessarily accident but I'll come to uh, back to that in a short time. Uh, this is the reconstruction. Again, I'll explain something of the background to it when I come to it, but at this stage, just, uh, we're just talking about dust. Uh, but moving on to the... the oh, back to the 1946 painting, this was the, um, the famous painting that, uh, that was suggested to Bacon, apparently, by a bird alighting uh, on a tilled field, a ploughed field, uh, but then the image just... Uh, took off in totally different directions. Um, and he, I think this was sold to the Redfern Gallery for something like £100, who then sold it to Museum of Modern Art in New York for £150, so a, a tidy profit at that time. But this, one of Bacon's major works um, um, from MoMA. And from my point of view, from the sort of technical and cons- conservators' point of view, but also from the point of view of technique, uh, the significance is that it, would, it, um, it couldn't travel to the, um, to the Tate show. It was too delicate. So um, this is a, a bit of a story I'm going to tell. I hope it's not too long-winded. But uh, uh, Bacon, was um, he was quite perplexed that it wouldn't travel. He very much wanted it in the show, and he actually flew to New York to try and persuade them, uh, but they pointed out to him how delicate the background was. Uh, And to us at the Tate, they sent over these photomacrographs, which demonstrate why it's delicate. And here you can see quite clearly uh, the lifting, this um, magenta, as he calls it, or cobalt violet paint. You can see it lifting from this layer underneath. You can also see a sort of um, ashy layer on top. So this was the MoMA explaining to us at uh, the Tate... Why it wouldn't travel. They were doing this out of courtesy, they had no reason. Um, and two further examples of this the weave of the canvas and the very delicate purples. Uh, but the story behind this is that um, why that MoMA did bother to talk to us about it was that because we had actually uh, contacted them to suggest, to tell them about a treatment that we'd carried out at the Tate on this painting by um, Graham Sutherland. So, again, painted in 1946 from St Matthew's Church in Northampton. Um, A colleague of mine was working on it as I joined the Tate Department. Uh, I'd been recently working on uh, medieval mural paintings in in Switzerland where the paint is very friable. there's no binding material. And uh, my colleague and I, we discussed a particular... Uh, treatment and it'd been highly successful. So that's why we were impertinent enough to uh, contact the Mo- MoMA to suggest they might try that. They tell us quite fairly politely that to mind our own business. Um, but uh, but the, the story goes on though and this is uh, well it's not it's not gratuitous but it's good like this is a single image from because uh, it has been juxtaposed in Martin Hammer's book about Sutherland and, and Bacon. Uh, but the point, uh, the, the story I want to tell you is that uh, during the course of this discussion, uh, the curator of that exhibition, Richard Francis, uh, more about him later, uh, he came to me in the conservation studio with the biography of Sutherland, where on page whatever it was, saying that Sutherland had sprayed Bacon's picture with pastel fixative. And if you remember, I showed you the, that sort of grey sheen over the painting. It all, it all made a lot of sense. Um, so we had these sort of comparable conservation treatments, uh, Bacon wanting to get this picture. Uh, so what I did was... Um, to ass- uh, So this uh, statement in a biography of, of Sutherland, I called Bacon, this was after the, the interview at his studio, uh, called him to ask him whether it was true. Um, he wasn't at all pleased. Um, I I asked him whether Sutherland had sprayed it with pastel fixative, and he said, no, that's not true. He was an interfering old cunt and put the phone down. (laughs) So even though it made sense to us, uh, that was the end of the inquiry as far as I uh, I thought. Um, And I didn't think much more about it until perhaps the, the, the very next day, Richard Francis came back into the studio with a letter in his hand. And I wish I had the, the actual facsimile, uh, the image of the letter to show you. Uh, but basically, it reads, um, dear, dear Graham, uh, thank you very much for spraying my painting. Love, Francis. Uh, so I tried to get a picture of that from the, from the Tate Archive. It's now in the National Museum in Wales, Sutherland Archive. Arch- but again, in Martin Hammer's book, which I first saw when I came to this exhibition here in December, uh, here, in fact, that is the transcript of the letter. And as you see at the top, it says, uh, what does it say? My dear Graham, I was glad to hear from you and thank you so much for spraying the picture. I believe all the magenta except the, bur- the blinds want doing. And uh, you know these are the, the blinds here. And then if you think back to those um, photomicrographs as well. Uh, It's interesting to note, too, when he further down, they're talking about Douglas Cooper there. Um, uh, Douglas will make an an attack on you uh, if he can, but really a champion of decoration, as he's rapidly becoming, I think, from the point of view of sorting things out, is also the good to be attacked by that prissy old voluptuary, which I think is rather nice. (laughs) Okay, so that's... uh, that was that little um, episode. Uh, but in the same vein, I wanted to show you this picture because that's, uh, this is also the major work that um, Bacon would have wanted in his retrospective exhibition. Uh, but it didn't travel either, the reason being very different. It had been in the Paris ex- exhibition in 1971, when, uh, when George Dyer died. Um, but the, um, the background to this is that it it's owned by, was owned, it would be interesting to know what's happened to it, uh, it was owned by Lucian Freud. And it's not delicate in any way, it's just as solid as all the other canvases you'll see upstairs. Um, but basically, uh, apparently rather, uh, Bacon had said to Lucian Freud, um, when, he was, uh, when he was persuading him to lend it to Paris, that if you do, I will never ask it for it again. He did ask for it again and Freud reminded him that he'd said that and he refused to lend it which I think is very um, very uncharitable Uh, and sort of in that same era this is the Adelaide picture which is an absolute favorite of mine as you can imagine in the art gallery of South Australia Um, and um, I'll mention it here again. I, I talk in talking in front of the painting, uh, the, the the use of um, this sort of claggy paint with the sand. I it, it's sort of in the um, this, these striations as well. So it's a very good example of the sand being mixed in with the paint that um, Tony was referring to earlier on. Okay, um, I would disagree. well I, I included this as an example. Um, um, and the, the ones with the text along the bottom, of course, I've, I've lifted directly from from uh, Tony's catalogue, so I wanted to leave that in to acknowledge that. But this, uh, the, the the Van Gogh series are very, uh, to my mind, are the most painterly of his works insofar as, well, all the canvas is, is covered, but he's using very broad, um, I better not use the word voluptuous as he used that of, Douglas Cooper, but it's this very sort of lovely fluid, very painterly Titian-esque use of, use of paint, and use of colour and use of use of paint. Uh, but uh, I can't remember the phrase Tony used, he wasn't too impressed by the sound of it. And this is the Canberra, another uh, very familiar one from, from a different sort of um, incarnation, the, the Canberra triptych, which I have to admit, having gone from the Tates and the, the um, The next one I'm going to talk about, of course, is the George Dyer, which is um, an extraordinary picture in my view. So, having gone from that, as it were, to this triptych, I always thought of this as rather sort of formulaic, very flat, and not very exciting. Um, And I sort of, at the time, I remember checking the dates because those so called black triptychs, of course, were post uh, George Dyer's suicide. And uh, this was. Uh, beforehand, I presumably this was in the, the Paris exhibition, but, uh, and it seemed to me just sort of not very sort of dynamic in the way the others are. Having said that, uh, when I visited the exhibition here um, before Christmas. Uh, you, the, the sort of use of this great splodge of paint i don 't want to say too much about this, but you know it can 't be really very accidental that he 's just taken the, the great tube and just squeezed the whole lot out in the middle of uh, what Tony called a sort of copulating couple there um, so um, the, like the whole uh, the exhibition has stimulated this uh, looking afresh, and that 's that middle panel with the uh, the great tube the paint used directly from the from the tube um, but back to this I, I as I say I went to the studio armed with my list of um, uh, list of questions and that I I wanted sort of information from him um, a couple of the questions were from one of our um, volunteer guides at the Tate uh, and I preface the first one by explaining that to Francis Bacon because I was rather embarrassed asking it but I said well I have been asked to ask you Uh, and the question was, oops, oh in this, is in the portrait is George Dyer wearing a low cut evening dress? Sorry, Francis, I have to I, you know, I was, so I was embarrassed about that. But, but he was, wasn't taken aback. He said, oh, well, never occurred to me. No, he isn't and wasn't, but he was rather taken by the idea. And I uh, said, and, it's, and if she wants to think that, that's absolutely fine by me. So that was a nice interpretation. Um, the other question that she, she'd raised, and it's, it's a more general one, and, again, Tony's... Um, he's talked about this already and written in the and it's something that I, I think we probably disagree on, uh, is his use of glass. Uh, so the question from this same guy was, did Bacon use glass so that your own ref- reflection was part of the picture? Um, so again, I, I asked him directly about that. And he categorically denied that. He said, no, it's not, not that at all. Um, it's... Um, It's uh, purely as a sort of visual unifying. In other words, it's a sort of, instead of varnishing, uh, as we heard earlier, it would be, well, not impossible to varnish, them. it would totally change the appearance, of course. And so the glazing, from Bacon's point of view, was purely a sort of visual varnish, which you couldn't achieve uh, physically. Um, I think the other points about the, the gilt frame were absolutely spot on as well. And it's something that the... The Tate, when we acquired new works by uh, living artists, we, certainly, we soon learned not to ask them about frames and what type of frame they wanted because they would always, you know, they'd, normally they'd probably put a bit of um, strip lining around them or something, a bit of uh, battening. But when asked by the Tate what uh, frame they'd like, they always said, oh, well, we'll have one just like Francis Bacon, please, you know, just a gold, gold leaf will do. Uh, but and the other point uh, I um, want to make on the frames, and this, isn't a, this doesn't bear my point out, because it's you can see how it's hung uh, almost touching. Um, you have it hung upstairs, I, I would think, about um, at least 12 inches from it. And the, the, the Canberra triptych was always um, hung with wide spacing. I, I raised this with James Mollison at the time. Uh, our understanding was that the, the correct spacing for a Bacon triptych was the, the distance of the, it was the fist of Valerie Beston, Valerie Beston being the, the curator of the, the, um, uh, his mm-hmm. agent at Marlborough Fine Arts. So when they were hanging, they would get Valerie Beston, and she'd put her hand there, and they'd hang one either side. So that was my understanding. As I say, uh, this is the Tate hanging, and they hadn't done that. Uh, just carrying on with um, the dra- we, his use of paint we've seen here. Um, we've already heard about the, um, the use of rags, and again, he would specifically said yes, and pieces of corduroy. And here and in the, in the um, portrait of Isabella Rawstorne, we see quite clearly, and in a lot of... We see this, and just using this as a, a very distinct example. A um, little bit of red there. I think it's a little bit of set um, which is a close-up of the of the mouth there. Uh, and again, these these um, little sort of these are just bits of letter pushed onto the surface, used very sort of in a very fragmentary way. Um, he does actually there are occasionally letters and, and numbers, but here it's just used sort of as as black marks. Uh, and this is the great swirl of this is in the middle in the middle picture. And again, you've got the the um, the sand, the letter set, this great uh, sort of serrated edges of, of of the paint as we zoom in again. That's the detail you see these the ridges of paint. And uh, again, that, we use that as a sequence of of just demonstrating the painted surface. And lower down on the figure, this spatter, spattering, a flicking paint, and in this case, using an aerosol. And I think in the next... Oh, this is the... Um, yeah, this is... Um, it's back back to front. The dark should be on the inside, uh, on the right-hand side. Uh, but again, um, the Tony's question about this sort of painting, a void... Um, I think here, uh, he, he, he said specifically that he uses um, acrylics for the background and he often uses a roller. But my thoughts here, I think this is oil paint and he, he adds a diluent. He never adds more medium. Uh, uh, like he wouldn't have put more stand oil into the, the, um, the paint, but he does thin it. And I think this is um, typically uh, black oil paint uh, thinned with turpentine and uh, then just sort of stained on Probably with a roller stained onto the, the the raw, the raw unprimed canvas. Um, I think this is a bit of a cheat. I don't think this is from this painting, but it, it's an illustration of the, you know, the cloth, the um, the fibres getting stuck into the the sticky wet paint. Uh, and then this is one of the details from the studio, from the, the catalogue, uh, because I thought again it illustrated the the aerosols. There's rollers in, I can't see very well from here, but the, the rollers and the, the corduroy and the bits of cloth. So, uh, to me, that's the sort of the evidence of the of his working practices, of course, sorry if, if, if I'm not stating the obvious. Um... I think I just included this because again I had a very good detail of this splodge of of, of paint on. I always presumed it was that this figure, George Dyer's tie. We've, we've seen a, the, the spine here already, but I just imagined it was some sort of uh he he, he just spurts this from the tube and then flicks or pushes uh, those grains of sand into that. So sorry, that was a detail which I haven't haven't shown. And then uh, Isabel Rosson again, which I think is one of his absolute masterpieces, and to me, this really represents what Michel Leiris uh, talks about—the sort of struggle and the, the wounded flesh—and I think this is the epitome of all his portraits. And I'm very um, glad that it, with the triptych to George Dyer triptych, could, um, could come here to Sydney. And Michel Leiris himself again. Um, because I think some of his writing is the most perceptive on the way Bacon creates paintings. Uh, And again, in the catalogue, I I think uh, Bacon is quoted as saying that that Michel Leris was the person who really understood um, his his working methods and the the reality of it, if you like. Um, This is the picture, I think, that that little... uh, uh, um, detail with the, the, the fibres stuck into the wet paint. I think it comes from here. Uh, but This is a raking light photograph. So that's the light shining. Uh, so this is a shadow, in fact, cast by the, the, light, the photographic light. And the point about it is that, and this is unique in my, in my uh, experience, that he's actually, um, and he talked about this, this picture wasn't going very well, but there was something about the figure that he wanted to keep. So he actually cut a, he cut this out. So rather than destroying it, he actually cut out that and stuck it onto a new canvas, and then finished off the picture. And this is in the collection. So how am I going? Two minutes. Oh goodness! All right, I must have been dawdling. Uh, I'll just I'll finish on. I, um, this is uh, called Jet of Water. Um, I thought this was in the Tate collection, but i have been checking it. It's in I think a private collection in. In, um, in Switzerland, uh, but what he described to me here is that he actually missed, uh, mixed his paint in a bucket and threw it at the canvas. He was wanting to. He talks about images uh, falling like slides before his his paint before his eyes. Uh, he wanted just to create a shower. In fact, he had a picture of a, a man in a shower or a person in a shower. So all this, uh, oh, oh, this has been painted first. And we'll see from the details that then this is the throne paint dripping down on top of this, again, the black, flat background paint. Um, so this is his example of chance, an accident, and accident. this is one of the details I used. Um, but it didn't work out, and he made it into another picture in the same way that painting 1946 started with, it, in his mind, a totally different um, um, uh, idea and image. Uh, at this stage, I was going to contrast it with um, Duchamp's technique, or rather, tell you the story about the the breaking of the 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 um, the 1966 version and of the remaking of it, uh, and just contrasting this sort of absolutely um, critical delineating of of an image, uh, the actual the nature of the, the materials, the lead paint was all part of the concept of the picture. Uh, I was going to. Just contrast and the, the Oculus Witnesses, the, the very precise technique of um, uh, silk screen printing with a mirrored image. This was highly technical by contrast to Bacon's uh, use of, um, of chance and accident. Uh, so I think if I leave it there, um, and I hope that's just given you some idea of, um, of talking, talking to Bacon about how he painted his pictures. Thank you. Thank you.